Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. On this episode, we have Michael McHenry. Michael is currently an analyst for the Pittsburgh Pirates. He's a former big league catcher. And in this episode, he goes over what it was like to grow up wanting, always wanting to be a catcher. He was highly, or sorry, not highly, he was not recruited very highly at all. Um, growing up, he actually reached out to the college that he ended up attending, Middle Tennessee State, to see if they had a spot for him. They actually ended up coming to take a look and offered him a scholarship, and the rest is history. In this episode, he talks a little bit about how if he could go back in time, he would swing way less than he did. Um, he's someone who, you know, re- uh, repeatedly says, you know, more is more, more of the right things is more. And kind of in this episode, he talks about how he was able to take uh, Tommy Pham underneath his wing and kind of get him to swing a little bit less. And it, it re- you really saw the difference just in his body language alone. So some pretty cool insight into um, a big league hitter's mindset and what what they could they would do if they could go back in time, um, because we all know how mental the game is. So it's some pretty unique stuff that you can only find out by listening to someone who was uh, a big league hitter. And then we also get into uh, catching. Michael was a catcher, so he gives some tips on handling different pitchers, um, some different drills that he's seen in spring training and, and why he thinks catchers um, in spring training today, they have the Ritz, they're, they're kind of in the Ritz-Carlton era um, versus back when Michael was catching. And then we also lastly get into what it's like to be a TV analyst, what a typical day is like, and how Michael prepares to call a game. So very cool stuff, uh, pretty interesting. Was really excited about getting Michael on the show, and he did not disappoint at all. So if you're interested in hearing about any of those stuff, um, you know what it's like to be a big league hitter, some tips for hitters, improving your game behind the plate, and then curiosity about being potentially one day, maybe if you want to be, or you're just curious about uh, being a TV analyst, this is going to be a fantastic episode for you. So, ladies and gentlemen, here is Michael McHenry. Awesome. Well, we're now live. Uh, Michael, really appreciate you coming on the show today, man. Yeah, hey, I really appreciate you having me. So you're now you're an analyst for the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, you played as well, though. You're a former big league catcher. And I also read that you, um, for a little bit, I don't know if you still are not, uh, director of player personnel at Middle Tennessee State. Yeah, I did that for a short time to understand the NCAA and to, to kind of combat the compliance. I was really close with a lot of guys. They were coming over for dinner and doing different things. And you know, not being a part of the staff kind of put me in a really weird area. So we made sure with compliance and everything else, there's so many rules in NCAA. That's why I ended up doing that. I did it for about a year. That coach ended up getting fired after the spring. So I ended up kind of just letting that kind of waste away. And now I'm just focused on being an analyst. So, you know, you have a, a pretty cool career. I've, I've actually read a, a couple of different articles up on you. I know you did one actually pretty recently. Um, talked a little about actually how you got, you know, how you found out you got called up. And it, it's just, I always like hearing those, those types of stories. But as a catcher, um, unique position um, in the sense that pretty much the only position, uh, position player on the field where, at least for me personally, I'd rather have a guy behind the plate who – um, you know, doesn't he, – he can hit and handle the bat, but I'd rather him be really freaking good at his position behind the plate. Did you always have just a ton of pride in being a, a defensive first, if you will, type of catcher? Or is it something that just came natural? Or how did, how did that go about? You know, throughout high school, I was always a catcher, even when I was 12, but I didn't catch that much. I was a good enough athlete to play – outfield, third base. I pitched a little bit. So when college came about, all I wanted to do was catch. I knew if I was ever going to have a chance being 5'9", 200 pounds, to play professionally, it was going to be as a catcher. So that was my mindset going into college. And I really wasn't getting recruited as a catcher because not a lot of people saw me catch. So Middle Tennessee State, I reached out to them, funny enough, and said, I want to catch, I want to catch. They came into the house. And I never never forget this. Coach Pete, 
uh, God rest his soul, he just passed away. He, he goes, Michael, I got one question. I said, are you going to catch or do you want to catch? I said, yes, sir, I do. He goes, good, because I was about to leave with your scholarship if you said no or if you said maybe. I just started laughing. I was like, this is the guy I want to go, you know, learn from and grow from. And him and the Brewers hitting coach, Andy Haynes, took me under their wing my freshman year. I didn't hit very well, but they let me play about 25 games behind the plate, I believe. I played some defensive replacement left field and right field. But they really taught me to own my craft. I, I, I was always passionate and a hard worker and wanted to do as good as I could for my teammates. But they took it to a whole nother level. He wanted me to establish that it was my pitching staff. He let me call my own games. And crazy enough, the first game I called in college was a no-hitter. I was a combined hitter, so it was really neat. Two, two juniors. One was a preseason All-American. Another guy ended up drafted in the fifth round. So two really talented guys. So it wasn't, definitely wasn't me. But we were on the same page the whole game. But I think that really instilled something in me to take so much pride behind the plate and take care of the guy 60 feet, six inches away. And even if I wasn't playing, I was on Coach Pete's hip or Coach Haynes' hip or I was with a pitcher. I tried to always have a dynamic that was a little bit different being a catcher because I think that's the most important thing. And then everything kind of, I guess, grows from there or flourishes from there. But you have to water that plant, fertilize that plant, and make sure it grows first. Uh, so Andy Haynes was a coach on that team? Isn't that crazy? He's our volunteer assistant. No, yeah. really? He went from, yeah. He went from his story, if you ever get a chance to talk to him, is remarkable. Independent ball from volunteer coach, won a couple championships, got into pro ball, worked his way up the ladder, won a couple championships. I played against him. I was on rehab with Colorado, played against him when he was the New Orleans manager. So that was just absolutely wild for me. And then all of a sudden, he's an assistant hitting coach in the big leagues, and now he's a Brewers hitting coach. I mean, talk about a guy that's grinded through kind of his whole career. This guy's 5'7", doesn't look like he could hit himself out of a wet paper bag, but the knowledge that he spews and the care he has for guys is just remarkable. Wow, that's I had no idea. When you mentioned his name, I was like, man, is this the same Andy Haynes that I've heard <laughs> about? Yeah, that's pretty good. I was listening to uh, – he did a podcast not that long ago, and – yeah, I'm just backing up what you just said. He's great knowledge. Um, it's I, I love the insight, and I think I think some of the stuff um, as a hitting coach, just myself and you being a big leaguer, I'm sure you can attest to it as well. Is you you do need to be around the game, and I and I think for just for me, like being around professional baseball, even just a, in a short amount of time, I feel like I've become a, a lot better of a hitting coach. And it has nothing really to do with any of the technology, but it's just kind of understanding and being able to communicate with players and giving guys, you know, weird ways to kind of get out of funks. I mean, you know, I was listening the other day to, um, oh, Anthony Iaposi, who's now the Cubs mm -hmm. big league hitting coach. And he was talking about how he told one player to go up there and get jammed. And, you know, that would kind of allow him to spread the field back out again and he wouldn't be in a slump for as long of a period of time. Where I'm kind of getting at is, did you have any anything like that to kind of help you get back on track as a hitter or just allow you to hit? Maybe that was a little bit different. Um, yeah, I actually had Ipo when I was in Texas, and he's very, very good at understanding the human being. And I think that's where, like you were just saying, there is technology, and I wish I had it as a player. I'm sure you do as well to the extent of, like, you don't have to really guess anymore. It's almost like a cheat code. You can really kind of – uh, expedite the process so to speak and you can really see where you match up with other guys but that doesn't matter if, at all if you don't know how to apply it and you don't have to know how to make a guy tick so when you talk about for me as I grew as a player and as I got older it, it kind of uh, changed almost like the current in an ocean like it, it was never the same thing I was focused on year in year out when I was stuck on a really good year. So like 2007 was one of my best years in the minor leagues. I felt good. I didn't have a bunch of funks and I tried to chase that for a year or two. And then I just said, you know what? I need to become the hitter I am now and forget about that guy because that guy was 21 years old and he's a different cat. You know, I'm 24, 25. And when I did that, it really changed a little bit of everything for me. I stopped trying to chase my A plan and I understood that, Hey, if I don't feel good today, I have a B plan, I have a C plan, and if nothing else, I can go up there and compete. 
and then find my little victories day in, day out. So that was something that was really important to me because I was really hard on myself. I would overwork at times. I would spend too much time in the cage. Uh, they used to call me a cage rat. I'm sure you've heard that term. So I tried to focus on little victories and doing the little things properly on a daily basis and then let it kind of go from there. And then as I got into the big leagues, I focused on the bat I had, the situation I had, and who I was facing. That was the most important thing I could see. How my swing felt, if you go watch a big league batting practice, the guys are so super consistent. The, the separator is their mindset, their mentality, their approach, and what they're trying to do consistently and how they can adapt really, really quickly. I mean, those are the guys that are really special. Do you think that if I went, like, went back and, and talked to you when you were 21 years old, uh, or 22, or I should say, no, because 21, you said you had a good year. When you were maybe like 22, 23 years old, that you would have listened if I would have recommended to try to do less and like get out of the cage more? Or do you think you had to go through those failures to realize it for yourself and that's the only way you could it was going to sink in? So a motto that I came up, I kind of came up with with my trainer back home is more is more. You know, everybody says less is more but more of the right thing is more. So for a guy like me, instead of like, I would have embraced what you said, but if you came up to me and said, Hey, let's spend the time in the cage, but let's sit down and talk. We don't have to be swinging a bat. We can work through what's going on in your mind. Cause most of the time it wasn't my ability. It wasn't my, my path that was messed up or my timing that was kind of out of gears or out of wax. It was really just my headspace. It was, it was being able to clear that, and trust the work and the preparation. I mean, nobody that I played with hit more than I did or spent more time in the cage than I did. And I had to trust that, but that was hard for me. I was, I'm very high energy. I'm high strung. I'm always processing. So having a hitting coach do that and tell me to step back would have been way more important because that's more of more, but it's more of the good. It's not that, that allows that less for more. If that makes sense to yeah, you. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah no, I think I, too often, like, guys that are high-strung, like uh, Tommy Pham is probably the first guy I've ever seen that spent more time in the cage than I did. And I played with him in uh, AAA with St. Louis, and he was struggling. It was before he kind of figured some things out. He was chasing a lot of different things. And I remember I just sat down with him and said, hey, dude, let's just talk. Because I knew that's something I would need. I was watching him do things I'd done in my past, and I was – 31, 32 years old. I've been through the ringer at seven years in the big league. So I was like, all right, we're just going to talk to this guy, see what he's got. And just allowing him to unleash on me, I think really kind of took the weight off his shoulders. I didn't tell him anything. I didn't give him any advice. I just let him unleash whatever was holding him back. And it seemed to free him up. I mean, I don't even remember how he performed after that, but his morale changed, his attitude changed. He became a better teammate. And now – if you look at Tommy Pham, I mean, the guy has been absolutely outstanding. He loved his craft, but he had to give himself a little bit of freedom. But if you told Tommy Pham to take less swings or spend less time in the cage, he'd say, no, leave me alone. That's really good. That's great advice, and that's good insight right there, too. And I, I liked how you just said you, it wasn't that you told him anything specifically. You just kind of asked him a couple of questions, and then he just got everything off his shoulders, I think that's just a sign really of that's just, I mean, I, I talk to a lot of coaches and that's what a lot of really, really good coaches say too. Yeah. You, you have to step back. I mean, especially the older the kid gets allowing them to answer their own questions is sometimes the best things you can do and understanding what guys need that and what guys maybe need a kick in the butt, what guys just need to be told that they're superhuman. You just have to find that dynamic and feed it. And if you feed it well enough, you know, we know as, as, as athletes, you want to feed your body with good nutrition so you can perform optimally, blah, blah, blah. You want to do the same thing for a kid's emotions or a player's emotions or their mindset, anything. You want to try to feed it as best you can for what they need, not what you think they need, what they actually need. So you, you said, you know, your swing was fine, um, but you said that it was you kind of had a lot of clutter going on in, inside your head. Can you kind of like explain that a little bit more? And then maybe like what could you have done different had you if you could go back now? So looking back, it was it was really from the outside in to me. So my agent at the time, 
well, let's put it in perspective. So I get drafted in 06. I'm in big league camp in 07 spring. No reason to be there. They need an extra catcher, but it put me on a little bit of a pedestal right away because I was the only kid besides the first round draft pick that got $4 million in camp from our draft class. And then 08, 09, I never didn't go to big league camp. Um, after that, it kind of set me up. And my agent from the time I went in 07, which had no shot of making the team, didn't even play the game. I was just up there literally to learn and grow. He was like, oh, you have a chance to make the team. You've got to do this. So that, that pressure was building on me, building on me. And same thing from, you know, guys that I played with, you know, whether it was jealousy or, you know, contempt or whatever it may be, I felt that pressure. I was always a guy that wanted to be the best teammate, a good friend, just a good person in general. So that, that weighed on me. I didn't realize it, but it did. And then over my career, I started to flush some of those things out. And that's how I opened up the door for some things. But it was almost a little too late. So if I could go back and do it, I would get away from the game as often as I could with my head. You know, like go on a hike, go read a book, get away, because the game can quickly become everything. My faith is everything to me. And I didn't focus on that enough, but sometimes you don't even realize it. It's just, you just need to get away. Like just walk away. Don't think about your swing. Just show up one day and just be like, Hey, I'm just going to start raking today and, and don't over process it. You know, I would go home and watch film. I try to figure out why this isn't happening. What's this guy doing that I'm not doing. And I just overdid it. And that put endless amounts of pressure on my shoulders that I didn't even realize I was doing. And when I let go of it, for two, three months, I would be outstanding. I'd play great. I'd have freedom. You saw the joy uh, in my face. Like, I remember looking back at pictures with my wife right after I retired, and you could literally see whether I was playing good or bad. It didn't matter, but you could see the joy shift. And I, I kind of wonder, like, where I was, and I kind of processed through it, and we talked about it, and it's wild. And if you could just focus on, like, how great of an opportunity it is just to be playing the game – I think that's the the narrow focus I should have kept all the time. Yeah, I'm sure that's tough. I mean, I just envision you being young and, you know, your agent telling you, you know, you got a chance to make the team when looking back, you really didn't. And then you mentioned, you know, the jealousy or possibility of that. And then, you know, other friends mentioning stuff. So it, it's definitely, it goes to show that it, why it, it is important to have that coach um, like you were saying before, kind of sits you down and lets you kind of talk it out a little bit of like what's actually going on. And that could allow you to put it in perspective too. I know uh, this year in spring training, one of the things that really caught my eye was how brutal a catcher schedule is in spring training. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's literally like, I mean, like I would never want to do that. I mean, you're, you're basically thrown in, you get a couple rounds of BP, then you got to go to a backfield and catch someone. And then, thrown to another place and catch another bullpen and it's I mean was I take it that that was your experience too oh hey it's the Ritz Carlton nowadays like let me tell you <laughs> they get the five-star resort going on nowadays it's completely different like I'm, I remember watching um last year you know I, I'd never really seen it from a bystander you know I've never really watched like say you know I'm just gonna watch this I was always a part of it so I didn't realize what was going on but Watching the Pirates go through spring training last year and this year, the guys don't catch anymore. They <laughs> legitimately don't catch. I was catching five, seven bullpens a day. I never got live BP during the, that session. Like, that didn't exist for young guys. Nowadays, it's like, oh, I'm going to catch one bullpen and I'm going to beat it and go recover. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, these guys nowadays, they don't know really how good they have it. I remember in 07, I have Javi Lopez. Everybody knows Javi Lopez, all-star catcher with the Braves. I idolized him as a kid. I thought he was unbelievable. Well, our catching coach, Jamie Cork at the time, throws on the machine, 90-mile-an-hour sliders just dropping in. I remember Javi Lopez goes, what is going on? He had bruises all over his arms and everything. This guy had 14 years in the big leagues. He was trying to make Colorado's team, and they had no sympathy, no mercy, just, hey, figure it out, big guy. I mean, that's, that's the mindset they had, I mean, just 14 years ago. Now it's a lot different. They want to, you know, hey, we're going to sleep in for spring training. That wouldn't have happened. I had to be the first guy there, no matter what, or my catching coach would have killed me. So it's just, it's just a different world. It's probably a lot smarter. 
but uh, I wouldn't change the grit and the tenacity that I learned from, you know, having to carry Tori Alba's bag for three years in Bibley camp to field five that was about a mile away from the clubhouse. So, I mean, so you say you think it's probably smarter now, but do you think it, it helps more players or do you think that that gritty type of mentality has to come from the way it used to be? I think you can find the balance to not allow entitlement to come in. I think guys nowadays are getting invited to camp younger. Um, the league is becoming younger. And guys maybe don't respect the history of the game as much. I know that's uh, very evident in the MLBPA. Uh, a lot of those guys don't even know, you know, how it uh, got started, why it got started. They don't know much about the strike. They don't really – have a desire to even um, love on it. I mean, some of the older guys do, guys that have had quite a bit of time. Yeah, they, they're all in. It affects them a lot. But I think just understanding kind of how guys fought to get to where they are gives real perspective. And it, it makes it realize, like, hey, this wasn't always, you know, this easy and this clean and this, like, freed up. I mean – even the way the minor leagues has shifted over the years, you know, you, you get fed better, you get supplements now. Um, they actually think about recovery. Those are all great things. But it's also don't forget, like, sometimes, like, you need to go eat a peanut butter and jelly and, you know, not have enough water or the water's nasty. It tastes like hose water from a kid. You know, some of those things, like, I think make you even more appreciative as you move forward. And I know it did me. Yeah, that's those are some really great points. That's some good insight right there. Um, being a catcher, is there is there a way that you would work out or like how did you get yourself ready to play every single day? Um, because I can imagine, I only imagine because I've never caught my life. That's just got to be a brutal grind on your body. Not to mention, you have to not only catch but do the hardest thing in sports, which is go up to the plate and try to hit a baseball too. Right. Um, once again, it's shifted over time because of how much the game has shifted. But early on, like as a catcher, and I think this should be almost represented as any athlete, is I didn't take a lot of time off. You know, it took a week or so to get settled in. And then I was back in the weight room or at least doing something active. You know, early on in my, in my career, I was back in the weight room. I was mountain biking, trail running, you know, trying to be the best athlete I possibly could, not really worrying about being a baseball player. I was real adamant about working out with NFL guys, NBA guys, whoever I could, not just baseball guys. I didn't want to become a rotational, you know, love muffin. <laughs> I mean, you know, too often we get too sports specific when sometimes you need to jump a hurdle. Sometimes you need to go out and mountain bike and fall off that bike. So, you know, you're resilient and you can handle some things. That was really important to me. Todd Helton and my trainer that trained Todd Helton when he was younger kind of instilled that in me, like, there's nothing better than a barbell, you know, to make sure you're safe. He, I did some very unsafe lifts, but I studied them. I learned them. I loved them. And a lot of those things kind of drove me into my mentality behind the plate. It made me tougher. It made me stronger because I already knew I'd been through the ringer. I've been through a lot. I could handle a lot more than most because I spent more time, you know, training and more time running and doing some things. Even when the game started to shift and say, hey, don't do long distance. Don't do this. Let's we need to stay short, short, short burst. I still said to myself, no, this has always been good because the endurance I need to get through August and September, if I'm not building up my engine inside, I'm going to be hurt. So that's kind of how it all started. And then it kind of shifted into, you know, I had some knee surgery. So mobility became a huge, huge proponent in everything I did. I usually spend some time in the morning and at night before I went to bed on a lacrosse ball or whatever I could, and then recovery. As you, if I would have started the recovery stuff earlier, like Normatec boots, cold, you know, cold tanks, all that stuff, you think you're invincible at 18, 19, 20, but those years catch up to you if you don't take care of them then. Um, so just kind of basking it all in together and trying to find any implement I could to make myself better, that's what I was focused on. But I, I understood that I wasn't going to feel good most of the time, so that's how I trained. I, try, I trained as hard as I could. I'd go in the cage after I would work out a lot of times. I remember one day we did as many forearm exercises as possible and then went and hit. 
just to challenge ourselves like mentally and physically and stuff like that, you know, gave me a, a little bit of an edge in my mind once again to, you know, forget about everything that was maybe piling on my shoulders outside the game or whatever. It would free me up saying, oh, this is easier than, you know, when, when I did, you know, farmer carries for two hours and then tried to go hit. So just kind of changed that dynamic up pretty consistently. Well, I also think that, I mean, catching this position where you're squatting for, I mean, I don't know how many minutes straight. It's, I mean, how could you do one workout that really equates to that? I mean, I think it's a good idea of you kind of changing it up and doing a bunch of weird stuff, which I never even really thought about, but that would make really make sense for that position just because it's so you're squatting for, for such a long period of time. Now, what about knee savers? Are you a big knee saver guy? No, not at all. Um, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I actually have a patent that I'm working on to replace the knee saver. Whoa. Um, and I'll tell you why I don't like knee savers and why every kid should get rid of them. Okay. Your body is made to be in full flexion. So when you squat, if you look at just pull up a caveman or pull up a baby or pull up a, a toddler, their natural resting position is in a squat. Like, think about it. If you see a baby, they kind of just sit down. It looks like they're taking a little poo, mm -hmm. but they're in a squat. And as we get older, we lose mobility and we, we don't have that freedom, but we should. We shouldn't lose that. It's the restrictions of life that kind of do that to us. By wearing a knee saver, you want to be about 138 to 145, depending on your mobility, is your full knee flexion. And if you can't get there, you're putting – restrictions on your body so your hips will start to get out of line your back will start to tweak you have a better chance to pull a muscle because your body's not moving properly and how I really know this is the way I walked my entire life is why two of my meniscus tore so I walked with my hips tilted back almost like a bubble butt or a duck butt and because my hips weren't underneath me it put pressure on my meniscus forward and I tore them both Ooh. Different times, but I tore them both. And so did my brother, and he walks the exact same way. So mobility and freedom of movement is so important. And I'm sure you know as, as a coach, like whether you throw, whether you hit, the better you move, the more freedom you have, the mechanics are going to probably play out a lot better. I mean, our body wants to do the right thing. I mean, if you hand a kid a bat, most of the time, if, even if they're not that good of an athlete, you, you see them, you know, get get in slot they, they have the little torque they pull that barrel right through and the barrel just comes through and they don't think about it they just do it but then we get in the way and all these different things happen injuries whatever and you start to get choppy and all over the place but knee savers no bueno nope so so i mean tell me more about i mean are you allowed to speak anymore on your like when this is going to come out uh yeah it should be in the next year um it's been a long process they have no competition knee savers so um, when, when I started the process, I mean, it's a simple concept. It's a cylinder, um, tube that compresses behind your knee and the theory behind it is knee gapping. So if you look up knee gapping, um, it opens up your joint and allows synovial fluid to get in there to give nutrients to your joint, but it also helps, uh, relax your hamstring, your quad, everything else, the process with knee gapping. And they did it so often to me when I was rehabbing for my knee surgeries I was like, man, I wish I could do this throughout the whole game. So I made something that actually worked. And it, the goal of it is to get rid of it and put it on when you need it, when you're in the bullpen. And the only time it actually affects you is when you're given a sign. So the only time it's actually gapping your knee or doing anything is when you're giving a sign. Whereas a knee saver, it affects you when you're running to first, you know, to back up or when you try to block, you know, it gets especially – kids it drives me insane it always pulls them up instead of working down into the ground as further you get away from the ground the less power you have and the less opportunity you have so yeah you see these big league guys doing you know wearing these knee savers and stuff but these guys are a different type of animal yeah you know if if, if they weren't brought up wearing those i guarantee you they weren't wearing now yeah no that's that's a good point i never even thought about having to run down to first base or, or anything like that yeah. Um, that's, yeah, that's good stuff. I can't wait to see that when it, when it rolls out. What, what, what is the toughest part about being a big league catcher? Um, probably all the, um, hats you wear, 
I always consider myself as, you know, I'm the only guy off the field to play. Like I'm not actually in play. So I always thought of myself as an extension of the coaching staff. So whether it be the head coach, the bench coach, the pitching coach, the hitting coach, it didn't matter. I felt like I was an extension because I was, I was the closest guy to them. And then you're playing a, a friend and foe with the umpire. You have to have that communication to create a relationship with these guys. So they don't, I mean, it doesn't matter as much as it did 10 years ago because of all the analytics and these guys are trying their best to get every single call right. We're back in the day. If you go watch Greg Maddox pitch, I mean, he got this far off the plate about, you know, <laughs> I guess nine out of 10 games. I mean, it was a completely different ball game. And if you were a jerk, these guys would have a 32 inch plate. So, um, that kind of shifted as I went along, but, you know, having that communication and also being able to understand the pitcher and who he is, not just from a physical standpoint with stuff, you know, what's in his repertoire, what gets him back if he's high in the zone, but also like his personality. I, I realized something in my career as I went along is guys' personalities kind of match their makeup. So, like, if he's high strung, I need to allow him to be high strung, but I need to pull him back. I need to understand when to pull him back and how to pull him back. But it also helped me to understand how to call a game. Most high strung guys have a little bit of erratic fastball, but their off speed stuff brings them back in the zone. And other guys, where, you know, maybe they're not as high strung, they're, they're really, you know, slow heartbeat guys, those are the guys, certain ones you may have to jump on, but other ones you, you just kind of allow them to flow freely and you just kind of uh, walk alongside them and say, Hey, what do you think of today? How do you feel today? What do you want to do today? So all those guys would change stuff up all the time and they're always trying to find something new. It was, it was cool to kind of put that together, but I would say wearing all those hats and then at the end of the day, I still have to hit. So yeah. I have to put all that together and then go out there and hit. But that was always my last thing. And when I was focused hard enough on all the others, I always hit well. But when I was focused a little too much on hitting, you know, when I got to the big leagues, I had to pinch hit a lot and hitting became a bigger focus. I, I saw a lot of times, you know, my average drop, my power drop because I was so focused on the hitting side instead of all the catching that I had done for so long. Do you feel, uh, I, I guess my next question, follow-up question um, from that a little bit is, do you feel that the analytics had what like would have really helped you even more, like understand what guys do well, or do you think you pretty much came to the same conclusion regardless? And if anything, it helped you more by not knowing it because you had to really engage with the, the pitcher and really pay attention. I think it goes both ways. Um, I think the ability to do it without analytics is super important um, because that's how you get to know a guy even better. And you don't just trust what the data says. You trust your eyes. You trust, you know, that gut instinct. Like, oh, I really feel like his third best pitch right here is the pitch to go. I just got to make sure it's in the dirt. So I'm going to overemphasize that where analytics may say, oh, the sequence here is better, but that's not the sequence we need to go with today because that pitch isn't a sharp. It's kind of rolling in there almost as a gyro style instead of you know, having any bite. So I'm going to focus on what I'm seeing, but also the analytics and the numbers that the hitter has, but kind of balance that out. So yeah, I think it would have really helped me and where it would have helped me the most is to um, expedite the process with each pitcher. So they knew I cared. I would sit down with guys and be like, Hey, what's your identity? It's one of my favorite things to ask. And most of the time I'm like, what do you mean? I said, if you know nothing about a guy, you're back in little league, but we're playing the major leagues. How would you face him? Like, what would you do? Lefty, righty, let's say the middle of the order, how would you face them? And they'd walk through it. And it's amazing to me sometimes when I hear them speak, they're speaking on things that people have told them. Mm. They're not speaking on what they actually are good at and what they actually want to do. And once they understand what they can do and how they can do it, it opens up a whole new world of possibilities. And I think analytics kind of give you that uh, opportunity to put down a sheet and say, this is what you're really good at. This is what you could be really good at. And this is probably what we need to stay away from for a while. And it opens up the door a lot faster. Gotcha. That makes sense. 
I was talking to, I don't know if you know this name, Zan Barksdale. He runs Catching 101. Um, he has a catcher's conference every year. Yeah, I spoke at his catching con last week. Okay, did you? Okay. So I actually had him on a few several weeks ago now, and he thinks his um, opinion is going to be in the future, we're going to start seeing more and more catchers throw from one knee. Um, do you agree with that, or what, what are your thoughts? It depends on the strike zone. Um, if they go to automatic strike zone, I don't think it's going to matter. Um, but if baseball stays where it's at and college baseball is right behind it, where analytics are so, so – I mean, actually college was ahead. Now uh, professional sports are, are ahead. But that ability to receive the ball and change the outcome of a game by manipulating the zone right now is by far the most underrated thing in baseball. I mean, a catcher can impact the game more than any person on the field, day in, day out. They call the pitches, they receive the ball, they block the ball. Lastly, they throw the ball. Um, so being able to receive the ball and save two or three runs a game, I mean, think about it. That's like a guy getting two or three RBIs. Yeah. He's saving them. So if a catcher hits 190, has 40 RBIs, but he has 28 runs saved, uh, very similar to the guy Hedges in San Diego, the guy literally has 60 RBIs even though he hit 180, but it's a different outlook because you can look at it so differently now. So I do think, you know, there's a lot of guys already doing it. Uh, Mitch uh, Garver has, has been doing it. Uh, Real Muto's thrown some from his knee. A lot of guys, uh, Cervelli and Diaz with the Pirates were doing it some. I think you're going to see it more. I think you're going to see guys on their knee with runners on second and third a lot more. I'm actually teaching that when I work with guys. Hey, how are you going to block runner on third, you know, less than two outs, what are you going to do? Like, anytime there's an opportunity to ball keep by you, it could hurt you, what are you going to do? And it's amazing. It actually helps some kids stay, you know, connected to the ground longer and they move better because they have to open up their hips a little bit more to get down in that space. And I make them move to different knees so they're not always on their left knee or not always on their right knee. And it just kind of um, allows them to move freely like they never have. You know, they don't have that huge butt up and, the target out here sure, uh, yeah. trying to stay low and work underneath the ball and work through the ball. So I do think you're going to see a lot more one knee stuff um, in all aspects, catching, receiving, um, blocking, all of it. What about throwing? Absolutely throwing. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. Same thing. Like uh, probably one of the better guys I've seen do it is uh, Sanchez with the Yankees. He was working on it in spring training. There's a clip out there. You should look at it, but it helps guys stay low and make a shorter step with that right foot. A lot of times, especially young kids want to take that over-exaggerated step, which unties their arm and their arms late and they start doing this and they manipulate and their brain tells them, Hey, your hand's not close. I got to figure this out. So they bounce it or throw it high. I think it helps them really understand where their body's at. It helps them stay connected to the ground, use that ground to create the force and the power and allow their arm to work free. So, um, for me, I haven't seen a big time difference. You know, if a guy throws a one nine, he may throw a one nine two from his knees or coming off of his knees actually into the stance. There's not a huge difference. I think it's just being athletic and if the ball takes you this way, you may not be able to do it. Or maybe it's this way that you can't do it. You have to decide and learn and put yourself in those positions in practice. What was your pop time? Speaking of pop times. Uh well, crazy enough, I was an elite thrower coming into Pro Bowl. Um, even in, throughout the minor leagues, I think my, my ending average was close to 40 something percent. Um, I took a couple hits really bad at the plate, probably tore my labrum, lost some arm strength and it took me a long time to get it back. So I had to adapt. Um, so I went from being a, you know, one nine guy pretty consistently to, you know, fluttering at two, two Oh, two Oh five and praying it's accurate for there for a little while. Cause I didn't have as much feel. And honestly, I took it for granted my whole life. I always had a, uh, a super soaker. And then I got back to a water pistol. And I <laughs> didn't learn how to, you know, utilize my body the right way with the super soaker. So I always took it for granted. Because if I threw from one knee or if I threw it sidearm, it didn't matter. I was getting it there where that same throw was bouncing. So I had to really learn. And I mean, it took me a couple years, especially with knee surgeries, knee surgeries to figure that out. 
So in showcase terms, uh, you threw a one nine actually in a game. So probably if you're in a showcase, you're probably these days you would have thrown like a one five, one four, one five. <laughs> yeah, that's what like that stuff drives me insane. I mean, if if it's not at a game, it, it shouldn't count. You know, like you can you can read arm strength, um, release time, exchange time, all the stuff that you need to read, but like. Let's, let's put it in perspective. You know, when a guy's 12 feet out in front of the plate or he cheated 14 feet, you don't know if the guy – like, what right. if he swings? You know, right. like, it's just – some of those things are so funny to me. So, yeah, if I always tell guys, let's work on making sure you're moving right, the ball's coming out good, you have clean spin, you're getting a good grip, and then let's worry about trying to be up and down, not left and right on your throws – and we'll also, on a different day, work on how fast can you get rid of it and not worry about accuracy just so they feel themselves moving fast. And then you just try to combine those two. But if you don't make a good throw, it doesn't matter. Right. You know, so you can be as fast as you want. If it's 1-8 and it's in the outfield, you know, he's on third base. That's, a, you know, that's never a good thing. <laughs> Well, I think one of the one of the things that or reasons I, I really wanted to have you come on the podcast is is give you know this really cool insight as a former big league catcher, but also because not just you're a former big league catcher, but you've also seen a different side of the game as well, being an analyst, a TV analyst um, for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And before we started recording, you mentioned how one of the reasons you wanted to do that is because you knew it would help you grow and learn more about the game and, and become a better a coach um, someday. Why, why has it helped you become, in your opinion, a better coach and learn more about the game than just being a regular coach in professional baseball? So I was blessed and fortunate to play in the major leagues, but if you ask former coaches or you ask former teammates, they'd all probably tell you that God made me a coach before he made me a player. Um, I usually cared more about other guys than I did myself a lot of times. Um, and if you find yourself doing that, you're probably going to fall into that coaching career. Um, I just wasn't ready and didn't think I was where I wanted to be to do that right out of the gate. And I wasn't even sure if I wanted to retire. So I didn't know how my brain would take, you know, going from the field as a player straight to a coach. You know, I had those opportunities and, you know, even I had a chance to go into the front office and I was just like, man, I just doesn't feel right. Like, I think that's not my path. So I got this opportunity with AT&T and the Pirates. Um, my wife kind of, kind of nudged me to go interview as I'm still looking for a job to play that next year. They gave me a great opportunity to, to, to learn from them during that interview, but at the same time, like, kind of put it on me a little bit and I ended up getting the job. They gave me six weeks to figure it out. And then John Gruden came on air and he talked about his experience as a guy in the booth as an analyst and how he got to learn from, you know, the quarterbacks coach with the Raiders and how he got to talk to the New England strength coach and how he got to talk to the Falcons defensive end coach. And he got to put this potluck together of incredible information that if you're tied to an organization, you can't do. You may be able to talk to them at the winter meetings. You may be able to talk to them on the phone. They're not going to give you, you know, a lot of cool information or great information. And, man, was that ever right? I, I've been able to talk to GMs, uh, head coaches, hitting, especially hitting coaches, pitching coaches, and learn and be able to go over and help out with the Pirates and the analytical side with these video guys and break down stuff because that's what I do for a living on the TV side. So it's been fun to – kind of be able to make my own little potluck and then maybe one day, you know, God willing, if, if that's my path, I fall into coaching or if, you know, maybe I stay in what I'm doing and I just help individuals along the way that that's only time that could tell that, but it's been a huge blessing. I haven't missed anything but catching bullpens, competing and uh, dropping nukes. Other than that, like I haven't missed the game and I, I feel like it's because of the transition was super graceful going into uh, TV, radio and whatnot, because I'm still part of the game, but I'm not on the field where I want to jump out there and block a ball and eat it like an apple. Does it make you mad when you see on social media, everyone consistently bashing um, announcers in the game? Cause I see that all the time. Yeah, no, it doesn't. Um, I think a lot of it's, um, 
not too far off. I think in the broadcast realm, until recently, it's starting to go in the right direction. They're 10 years behind. I don't think they're talking about analytics enough, but at the same time, I'm in the Pittsburgh market. It's cutthroat, hard-nosed, you know, iron in the mill, steel mill workers that are a lot of the fans. They're older. Um, they want to hear the old stuff. So I have to be slow to introduce, you know, exit velocity and why that's important, why Josh Bell had a huge uptick in home runs from 14 to 35 by just moving six to 10 inches out in front of him with this contact point. They, they want to hear it, but you have to ease them into it and find an elementary way to explain it. But a lot of these announcers that are, you know, getting beat up, they beat up the players. And that's one thing I said from the get-go. If you ask me a question and you're trying to get me to beat up a player, it's, it's never going to happen. The game is too hard. And if I forget that, I'm going to go to the cage and I'm going to go hit. And I, I did that. I did that a couple different times over the last couple of years. I'd go hit, I'd go throw, I'd go block, I'd do whatever I could to never forget how hard the game is because I, I heard it when I played. They would wear these guys out like, oh, he should have made that play. He should have made that throw. I'm like, should he have? I mean, it's really hard. <laughs> you know, like it's not easy. And, and a lot of times it wasn't even because of the play. You know, last year, a great example, and, and I'll get off this tangent, Josh Bell went in a funk. And I said, there's something going on. There has to be something going on. His movements aren't that bad, but he's falling forward. He's not staying on his backside, and he's not allowing the time to happen. He needs to get on plane and catch the ball out front again. And sure enough, I go over, I talk to him. His Achilles is all banged up, and he's not able to stay you know, grounded the way he was. So he's coming off or out of his heel and out of the ground a little bit faster, which is making him a little bit off but he's getting crushed, you know, because he's hitting 180 over the last eight or nine days when he just hit 400 for seven weeks. doesn't matter. It's all about what you did that day and how you're doing that day. So I always want to remember how hard it is and really get a, a full picture painted before I make any assumption because I have no business making an assumption. That's not my job. I'm not called an assumption guy. I'm called an analytical guy or an, Right. Analysts, you know what I mean? So yeah. I want to make sure I know what I'm, what I'm looking at. One of the things that I've always been uh, kind of curious about is what, you know, I, I've, I know um, what a typical day like is like for a coach now and a player. What's a typical day like for you as an analyst? So I'm a little different than probably most. Um, you'll hear some guys go in, you know, an hour and a half, two hours before the game and do a little bit of notes, jot some stuff down and boom, done. Um, I, I take it almost identically as when I caught. I, may, I make a scouting report of, say, uh, Max Scherzer's pitching for the Nationals against the Pirates. How's Max Scherzer going to attack my team? And I'll have a pretty good idea, and then I'll watch through the game and see, okay, ooh, off-speed stuff isn't good, but the changeup's still there. His velocity's really, really firm. If he hangs a breaking ball, we got a chance today. And I'll watch the game kind of progress – and sure enough, like a lot of times, it'll fall into a situation where is he going to let try to throw that breaking ball, which is the right pitch, or is he going to throw the pitch he actually has feel for today? 99.9% of the time, Max Scherzer always makes the right decision. He makes those, but it's, it's fun to kind of predict and have an idea and then start to watch the trends, same way as I did as a, as a catcher. You know, who's getting close, who's hitting the ball hard, and try to figure out who's getting hot, who's about to get hot, who's about to get cold. So I try to play the game within the game, and it's turned into me almost being a manager from a 13,000-foot view. Yeah. So I get to watch the game and watch it kind of unleash and see what happens and try to predict the moves. You know, it was Hurdle, now it's Shelton, what moves they're going to make and how they're going to do it and why they're going to do it. And it's been a lot of fun. And I think if you're not doing it like that, the challenge of it um, would get redundant because – you'd be saying similar stuff all the time. I'm always looking for something that maybe even I couldn't have thought of when I was playing and try to teach the fan at home something that maybe they're not even looking at. You know, I think that's the fun part about being in this business is the opportunity that you have a platform to teach, especially kids or parents that maybe can't afford a lesson or can't afford to go, you know, have their kids um, 
work with somebody special, maybe I can just give them a nugget that they can go out in the backyard and whack away at the pear tree like I did as a kid. Oh, that's fantastic. And I, it's a great point about how you're in a sense a teacher, even though you're an analyst, because I mean, not everyone can afford that stuff. That's, that's a great insight. Are there any analysts or I know you'd mentioned earlier, uh, Gruden, John Gruden, but are there any analysts that you study at all? Or is it just kind of your, you reflect on your, yourself and kind of make yourself better? Um, I love, I love Millar. I, he's not an analytical guy, but like just uh, kind of the way he keeps it fun and fresh and nonchalant. He still has the, the, the locker room talk, you know, he feels like one of the guys. And I think he's more accepted because of that. I mean, it really um, opens up the door for him to, you know, get in the cage with certain guys and do certain things. But he's a guy I really look up to, Tony Romo in football. I mean, the way he has the ability to be ahead of the game a little bit. I mean, it really does. Like when you step back and you have four TVs in front of you and then you're looking at it, um, you know, from the press box, it, it can slow down. And you can see things and you're watching the replay on this TV, you're watching real time on this TV, and then you're watching the delay feed here. You can start to pick up things as you get better at seeing, you know, three screens in the game at the same time. You can start to see things. You start to see movement in the dugout. And you're like, oh, he's probably going to pinch hit. In an inning or two, he always goes up in the fourth. That's when he gets ready. It means he's probably going to get you know, ready for the sixth or seventh where he can pinch hit. So you start playing the game um, within the game. But Tony Romo, there's not many better. Um, so I'm not a huge NFL guy. I don't watch a lot of football, but you know, when he's on, I try to watch and Kurt Herbstreet with, um, who I've been fortunate enough to meet and would love to, you know, he talked about maybe mentor me a little bit, which I'd love, but he's another guy that breaks it down in a whole new world. Um, and he, he has to deal with so much information, you know, dealing with all of college football. So I try to get outside of just baseball and try to learn from, um, a little bit of everywhere. Awesome. That's great stuff. I, I think we need to get you a Tony Romo contract too up in Pittsburgh, man. I think, didn't he just sign like a hundred million dollar deal or something crazy? <laughs> I wouldn't mind that, but uh, I don't know if their piggy bank is big enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Michael, this has been a lot of fun, man. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I, I mean, I live in Cincinnati, even though I coach for the Orioles. So, um, yeah, I have no idea what's going to happen the rest of this year, but there's ever in time. Do you travel with the team? Uh, I don't now, but um, this time next year, I don't know. Um, Steve Blash retired, so I'm doing a lot more broadcasting. So depending on kind of how that all shakes out, if they do, you know, a tandem deal or whatever, I could travel. Um, so I'm kind of waiting to see. Gotcha. Well, that's, if I, I mean, do, that's, yeah. I'll take your dinner. Yeah, that's right, man. We'll go, uh, we'll go to the uh, precinct. You'll buy a uh, precinct. It's yeah, insane. fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, man. Michael, really appreciate it. This is awesome. Yeah, I appreciate you. Thank you. God bless. Thanks for listening to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. Make sure to go subscribe on iTunes so you can stay up to date on the latest trends and techniques being taught in player development. Until next week, hope everyone stays safe.